on this episode of Starting Point. It's been incredibly helpful to identify what true north is. And that's everything from, you know, how we operate, what our values are, what our mission is, what our goals are. I mean, what kind of culture we want to create, you know, in our team, because that's a touchstone for all of your decisions. So when you have challenging leadership situations, I think, you know, referencing back to that true north and that ultimate kind of values, mission, culture, it, it guides the decisions. That's Meredith Johnston talking about identifying your true north as a touchstone for decision making and defining culture, values and mission within your organization. I'm Dan Allenby. Welcome to Starting Point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. I am so pleased to have with us as a guest today, Meredith Johnston. Meredith is the Vice President of Philanthropy at Scripps Research. Before that, she led advancement programs at UC Riverside. She also led annual giving efforts at the University of California, San Diego, as well as Oklahoma State University's foundation. Meredith is also uh, one of the longest standing faculty members here at AGN. She's taught countless webinars and facilitated many of our workshops. So Meredith, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm excited that you're doing this. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is, as we talked about, something that I've been wanting to do for a while. And when we put together the initial guest list, you were at the very top. So thanks for making time. It's early where you are. It is. <laughs> where are you? I'm in San Diego. San Diego. It's probably raining right now. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's just the stereotype of San Diego, you know. <laughs> okay. The San Diego clam chowder that you taste so good on a cold day like this. <laughs> I think you've got the wrong side of the country. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to hear about you. You've taught so many AGN webinars and done such a wonderful job, but we want to get to know uh, Meredith Johnston and find out about your journey so far through educational advancement. You've had a wonderful career. So you know, take us back, if you don't mind, to your starting point. Who was Meredith Johnston You know, before she got into educational fundraising? Where was she? What was she doing? What was she thinking about? So I was raised in Texas and my early career, you know, to be honest, I sort of felt like I fell into it, that it wasn't very intentional. I'm proud of the fundraising career because it was intentional. But before that, uh, I was in hospitality, you know, ended up in hotels from waiting tables mm. and like the hotel side of it more, you know, than waiting tables. But I'd gotten a job in college in Austin working at a restaurant and hotel. And so from there, I worked at the Four Seasons and I worked at the Four Seasons in Austin and then Los Angeles and Beverly Hills um, and very briefly in New York. But unlike you, Dan, the East Coast was not for me. I was not hardy enough for those winters. Not for, um, not for the week of heart. Yeah, exactly. And then decided uh, I really wanted to focus on my education and moved back to Texas. And from there, uh, because my sister worked there, she gave me a, a good recommendation. And I worked at Southwest Airlines for eight years. Wow. And I was in communications and customer relations and then got noticed. That yeah. was Southwest. That was how many? It was years? incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. It was a long, it was many years ago. <laughs> but I worked there for eight years and, and I ended up working in the executive office for my last you know, several years there. So I worked, you know, at Southwest Airlines on 9-11. And I got to work directly with Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett. And then when Gary Kelly came on. So I feel like between, you know, I credit most certainly to Southwest Airlines because I was there a very long time and I learned from 
people that I just have a deep admiration you know, for with regard to culture and communication. Was it the culture? It was the culture and the discipline. They were so intentional about what their true north was in terms of values. And, you know, with regard to how you handle customers and how you handle internal issues. And, you know, there was a roadmap for what was the most important in the company. And like you rules? followed those things. No, it really was. So here's a, it's a silly example, but customer is always capitalized, but so is employee yeah. and teammate and team. And, you know, they called it the Southwest Bible, which was really their guideline. But that wasn't just a capitalization. It was, this is our culture and our true north. This is our decision-making roadmap. And you were really taught the flexibility to make sound decisions following that roadmap. So as long as you were kind of following that true north, you were making the right decision, even if it was a little off the beaten path. When you say true north, like what, what is that? It's like our guiding star. This is what you should be aiming for at all times. It's been incredibly helpful to identify what true north is, what, and that's everything from you know how we operate, what our values are, what our mission is, what our goals are, I and mean, what kind of culture we want to create, you know, in our team, because that's a touchstone for all of your decisions. So when you have challenging leadership situations, either up or down, I think you know, referencing back to that true north and that that ultimate kind of values, mission, culture, um, it, it guides the decisions. They taught me so much about leadership and about mentorship and building a team that, I mean, I was so young. I was 24 when I started working there. And some of my best friends I worked with at South Australia still, and we've all gone on to do other things because we were so young. But the common thing for all of us is actually, I, I do have one best friend who is still there. It's funny because we didn't know how, we didn't know we were learning from the greats. We sort of took for granted that everyone, as they came into adults, were learning these things. And then we left and went out in the world and people were looking to us, still very young and feeling like we uh, didn't know anything. People were suddenly like leaning into our ideas on employee retention and, and how to build teams and how to communicate in a crisis or how to communicate challenging circumstances. And it was then we started like touching base and comparing notes and realizing we actually learned a tremendous amount. And so there's a lot of ways that that carries into my career now. But I think that that really, really high standard of customer service is what I take into donor relations. Do we have that at all in, in the educational advancement world? I mean, have you either worked for or have you seen advancement shops or institutions that have that same kind of culture with a clear sense of purpose, a true north and, and the culture that sort of makes it so that everybody who works there gets it and can and can thrive and make yeah. independent decisions because they know where they're supposed to be headed towards? I am sure there are many. Yeah. For me, Oklahoma State was like that. Yeah. I would guess that maybe Texas A&M might be the same way. You know, those schools with Washington State, I think is probably the same way. Does it depend who the president is or who the chief advancement officer is, or is it more just sort of built into the culture? I think culture has to be bigger than one person. One person can't take it down, but one person also can't build it alone. Yeah. So places with a real defined identity, you know, like at Oklahoma State, I will say one of the best things that they do is onboard. They just onboard their team so well at the Oklahoma State University Foundation. They welcome you day one. I found printed out calendar. I found my, you know, P card, credit card, but there was also a branded gym bag, a branded water cup, 
They, yeah. It was a huge welcome and an investment in you, literally from the first moment. Your desk was set up with flowers and a welcome gift. They had a, because so many people move to work there, because Stillwater is obviously very small. They immediately assign you a friend. And it's not a, a professional mentor. It's like a Stillwater mentor. Yeah. I immediately was, you know, got an invitation to lunch from this person who also, you know, wanted to tell me where the best dry cleaner was, where they weren't going to like r- lose my clothes. It was someone I could go to to say, is there a good sushi in town? And where do I go for this that just helped you from the first moment? I'm sure there are more places like that. Was that your first job, Oklahoma State? In no, it was my first move. So I started working at my alma mater. Do you want to hear the how I got into development? I do want to hear We're kind of transitioning. Okay. That's what I told you I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, dumb luck is the short answer. <laughs> I had been working at Southwest Airlines. You know, I kept getting promoted. I kept staying there, but it wasn't really a deliberate choice of a career. So a little bit of a early stage midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And I was getting my master's at the time in my spare time after work. And I had really started thinking about what do I want to do with my life? I, at the time, was thinking of a couple of different things. And one of them was getting my PhD in English and teaching at the university level. Um, becoming a professor. And I was looking at, okay, how do I get a job that is, um, there were transitions in the executive office. And so I was leaving Southwest Airlines and I was thinking, okay, you know, what can I do that will support this goal where I can be more intentional about my future? And I was married to someone at the time who was also getting his master's or PhD. I think he was already in the PhD program. And so I thought, well, I'll get a job at the university. We lived right next to UNT. He was already a student there. I was already a student there in the evenings. And I thought, well, I'll just get a job there. And then he and I's tuition will be almost completely covered because of the benefits being a full-time employee. And I thought, well, it could be anything because really when I finish my PhD, they're not going to like look at job history. Everyone works you know, different jobs while they're going to school. I just thought I'll take anything. And I started looking at their website for anything that had communications you know, as an emphasis in the job description. And Meg Weber interviewed me for a phone-a-thon position because it was, yeah, because it was flexible hours. And she really liked, I learned later, um, the Southwest Airlines rah-rah culture part for a phone-a-thon environment. She, you know, was raised, quote-unquote, professionally in the phone-a-thon, you know, was a student caller and then ran it. And so she had a really good sense of it. Um, I knew none of this yet. And very, very grateful to her that she took a chance and hired me. And I never left fundraising again. I loved it. I found the relevance of my communication background so helpful in coaching the callers and how to talk about what we do and how to talk about the reasons why. And, and I loved it. So that's how so I was at the University of North Texas. Did you know right masters. this was what you wanted to do? No, no. Not not a while, like a long while. It was just, it was a little bit before I sat back and made that decision. You know, I was really enjoying it. I'm very competitive. I really, you know, threw myself into the phone-a-thon, loved working with Meg, uh, learned so much. And then all of a sudden I looked up and thought, I don't want to leave this. This is actually deeply rewarding. And for me, especially at the time, I thought, I feel great about how this is supporting education. And I feel like I can make a better impact on this side of it rather than in the classroom. And again, the competitive nature, I don't know that being in the classroom would give me that same satisfaction of of seeing the impact I made. You know, like you hope that you impact students, but I don't think you really hear about it very often. Every once in a while, one might come back to you and tell you, but 
you just kind of like hope and pray that it's landing where it should. And I don't know that that would have been the best for my personality. So I think I ended up right exactly where I should be. So you know, I worked at the University of North Texas and managed the annual giving program and then tried major gifts. And Meg Weber hired you. I don't think I ever appreciated that. I feel like oh, she, yeah. you introduced me to her. She's amazing. Because right when AGM was starting out, you were right there. You were one of the yep. few in Katuri. Um, Who's also one of my best friends. Yes. Katuri, <laughs> Beatty. Beatty or Beatty? Beatty. Beatty. Although DeLong now. DeLong, DeLong. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so you said that Oklahoma State was your first move. So you, you got yeah. you got some experience under your belt at North Texas. Yeah. So I like grew yeah. at my home, at my alma mater. And I was there for a really long time in a lot of different roles. But my first, like, I'm going to take an offer and start in a big job at a new institution was Oklahoma State University. And this was a move as in, I'm going to apply for this big job. They called me. I wasn't. What was the job? It was the associate vice president of annual giving. There probably and weren't a lot of AVP of annual giving positions at that time, right? Because there was a lot of no. But now, now we probably take for granted that there's assistant yeah. associate vice presidents. But there was a time not that long ago when senior director, maybe, yep. maybe, or, yeah. But director was probably like the ceiling for yeah giving position. It was. I mean, there were two people that really, really convinced me. And got me so excited about considering that invitation, you know, to interview. And that was first David Loyalist, who's still, you know, such a good friend, such a great strategic partner. He helped me feel welcome. And, you know, I met him at a conference and he was like, let's have coffee. Was he there? So he was at Oklahoma State. He was. um, Had had come from SMU, I think. He ended up at Rice, um, but he was at Austin College doing annual giving and just like such a good friend and, and an ambassador for anywhere he was. So he was like, Hey, you know, you might be scared to think about moving to Stillwater. Just have coffee with me at this conference and let me chat with you and talk to you about this and see what you think. And I, I liked him. I liked everything he said. So I considered, you know, I continued the process and then met Ken Sigmund, who uh, is in North Carolina now and just such a phenomenal leader. My friends that were on his leadership team still kind of refer to it as Camelot. We had this phenomenal leader and phenomenal leadership team. And we held ourselves accountable and we held you know each other accountable and we partnered and we, I mean, it was really, really special, the environment that he created where you got to take some risks. Um, he was always a great, great sounding board for me, but he never micromanaged or he let me have some room to take high risks and would share you know his wisdom appropriately. And when asked, and there was just a lot of freedom and it was an exciting way to challenge yourself. I loved it. It was very, very special. Um, I was very happy to move on, but it was a really special, cool time. And how long were you there? So you, you came in as the AVP for annual giving. And yeah. Been a couple uh, of years? I was there about two years. Yeah. Okay. And then you didn't Thanks, like the yes. weather and you must have been seeking better weather. And where'd you go? Uh, San Diego. <laughs> Best weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it it was, um, Ken left soon after, you know, and I think he was such a big draw for the reason that I was there. Amanda Davis took my position behind me. who's a very, very good friend of mine, one of my best and, um, just one of my favorite people. And she and I often talk about, I, it's hard leading change, especially in an institution that has strong traditions. 
you know, when they are more traditional and Ken hired me, uh, he hired in the middle of a campaign and they had never had a robust annual giving. They really led by major gifts and they needed a more robust strategic annual giving program. And um, I came in and drove a lot of change, which is very hard for an organization. And I had some real tough lessons learned about maybe giving people a little bit of uh, time and space to catch up with you. <laughs> but I also kind of felt like I have big goals and Ken's trusting me to do you know big things. I have big goals that are not, I can't keep doing the same thing you know, that they used to do and get better and bigger results. So I need to do something different. But I was probably a little bit brash in how I went about that change. Like kind of like, this is my job and you need to let me do my job and get out of my way. Amanda always jokes that she was really grateful because she's so much nicer than me. She got to come in with all the benefit of me having bulldozed and cleared the way. And she got to be that nice voice that I think was probably a welcome. <laughs> welcome well, there are, after me. There's a great book called Traction that talks about leadership, but you know, it's, it is tough. Some people like to be, you know, they have a vision and they can lead through vision. Yeah. Uh, but you know, organizations don't get by on just people that have great visions. You need people who can implement and be doers and really strong managers. And that's tough too. You know, you actually, I read this wonderful description once of the difference between a leader and a manager. And it said that, you know, the manager, if you think about it, it was a, a jungle metaphor, you know, the, the manager is there with the machete cutting their way through the jungle, right? And yeah. people behind them, following them, and it's sort of cutting the path. And the leader is the one who's climbing up the trees, looking around, making sure they're in the right jungle to begin with. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's rare that you find people that can do both and you don't necessarily have to do both, but it's important to know within an organization who's who. Yeah. So, so you left Oklahoma State and you went to the beautiful Southern coast of California and to lead an annual giving program right, yeah. to San Diego. And what was attractive to you about that besides the weather? Yeah. I mean, San Diego first and foremost, but also, you know, UCSD, it was a big job. They were still figuring out how annual giving fit in the organization. And that was challenging. Is it, you know, part of alumni is a part of, you know, and it was kind of moving around and there was places really always are there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they still, as many program assessments as we do here at AGN, that's, that's the big question. What yeah, is exactly. And where does it fit into this organization? We, we often don't get too far past that when we do program assessments because that's so important. And so <laughs> like you can spend so really much time fun. on that. Yeah. And if you don't yeah, get that so, right, everything else is sort of, you know. Well, exactly. You're not in the right like, jungle, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say dead in the water, but I like your metaphor better. Yeah. So it was... It was really comprehensive. You know, there was an arm that was, you know, the constituent specific affinity programs. Um, and there was a whole team of, and the ability to hire some gaps that were there, but it was parent, you know, fundraising, student, you know, foundation and fundraising, faculty, staff giving of the affinity. There was a grateful patient program with the, you know, health sciences side. And then there was the ability to grow. It wasn't there when I got there, but it was the ability to grow and the support from the organization for all of the different multi-channel marketing. So, you know, I got to add crowdfunding, you know, as a platform there, in addition to direct mail and e-solicitation and what online giving looks like and have that seat at the table for those kinds of collaborations. And then there was the traditional frontline fundraising with our chancellor's associates and leadership annual giving. This and wasn't just an old school phone mail. No, I mean, it, it was a, it had disparate pieces, 
of yeah. some of these, but it was also the support from the organization to flesh out what this needed to be and how we made it. It was 17 people by the end of it in an annual giving shop, you know, but it, it was really capitalizing on all of the incredible opportunities that existed there. And that was really exciting. I am at my heart a builder. I really like that challenge of how do we build strategically and thoughtfully so that our resources make sense and we are building where there is opportunity and you know where people will be busy and we will see results and you know and how do we pull these disparate pieces together to create something that's really cohesive and powerful and Oklahoma State offered me that opportunity and and UCSD did as well and I absolutely loved it would you call it centralized or decentralized or somewhere very centralized very centralized what yeah makes it easier I think yeah Running annual giving efforts in a decentralized place is sort of its own. I've done both. I found, well, yeah, with Boston University, I found very centralized. It was a big place with like 17 schools and colleges, but it was yeah. very centralized. So it was it was less political and more like, I felt like more of an engineer yeah, and less of a politician. In a decentralized place, you end up feeling more like a politician. Yeah. I would say that OSU was decentralized from a strategy standpoint. Yeah. They didn't have annual giving officers and everything, but they were yeah. used to a very decentralized strategy. And that was one of the challenges you know, that I had when I got there was like, this doesn't make sense. There was two people on the team when I got there. I'm like, how are you even doing this? I mean, the results were not surprising, not very impressive because you have one person that's trying to respond to the needs of seven, nine schools, you know, whatever it was. And so that was one of the major gift officers who didn't think of themselves as major gift officers, but thought of themselves as like chief fundraisers for my area and thought that they kind of assigned annual giving to do things. And Ken, you know, understood and supported me. Your strategy, major gift strategy is completely different than annual giving strategy. And we're going to remove you from spending your time on annual giving and dictating your annual giving pieces. We want you to focus on your portfolio and major gift fundraising and let me do my job because I look at different data. I employ different strategies and we both need to kind of learn our lanes, which is, I think, not a challenging thing to convey. (laughs) So you had probably... Just looking back at Oklahoma State and then UC San Diego, I mean, those at the time were probably like the two biggest annual giving jobs in the country, just AVP, executive director, sort of building a program. Did you ever think, I never want to leave annual giving and I'm just, I'm going to be a lifer and just, I'm going to stay Um, because you didn't, you sort of moved on and you grew to some other positions. You left UC San Diego, you spent some time and you can tell us about it at UC Riverside, right? Yeah. And then kind of ended up where you are now at Scripps Research, but you're sort of overseeing more than just annual giving. So what was there a point in your career when you said, look, I I can continue to be, you know, running the biggest, baddest annual giving programs in the country, or I'm going to sort of keep annual giving as part of what I'm responsible for, but I'm going to take on broader advancement responsibilities. Like, was there a point in your career when you had to make that decision? So what, what did that look like when you left? Like, why, why did you move on from UC San Diego and, and take on more broad advancement? Uh, you're giving me more credit for yeah. being thoughtful than I deserve. Because um, it really, it, yeah, it really wasn't a um, decision. I mean, to be honest, we lost our vice chancellor at UC San Diego. And I didn't have anyone I reported to three, four different people in nine months. Like I said, the organization couldn't quite figure out where annual giving went or what its priority was. And then I was reporting to someone. 
yeah, I, I ended up reporting to someone who was lovely, but didn't understand annual giving at all. And she admitted that she was planned giving yeah. like literally the opposite of the pace, the rhythm, the tools, the technologies, you know, it's just a very, very, very different thing and articulating the challenges and the strategies was not her strong suit, you know, up to leadership as we sort of struggled to find our place in the organization. So they ended up eliminating the position and then rebuilding it in a different way. And I think now it's actually very similar to what I did as well, you know, in terms of like the structure of the team, but it bounced all over the place. And so I left, it was a chaotic time. I think, you know, it has since settled down and they have really stable leadership, but it struggled to find its place for a bit with the loss of a leader and having no one at the helm for a while. So um, that's when I went to UCR and it really was I actually interviewed for the annual giving job and was offered it, ended up turning it down and kind of kept looking. And then they had another job open up that was leading the fundraising for a specific unit. And I met that Dean and she was this brilliant chemist who was eager to learn, knew she wasn't, you know, she didn't know everything about everything about fundraising and she wanted a strategic partner and she wanted someone that she could be vulnerable with and ask, you know, how do I do that? Did I do that well? And I mean, any of us that have worked with academic partners knows what I'm describing is pretty rare, to be honest. And she was so cool and so smart. And the team was so fantastic. You know, the team in that academic unit. And it was the uh, it was the sciences. It was College of Natural um, and Agricultural Sciences under Catherine Urich. And they had like a third of the entire campaign goal. They had the most major gift potential. Yeah. Yeah. They had the most fundraising potential. So out of, I think, nine colleges, they carried a third of the entire campaign goal. And it was the very first campaign. Well, no, it was a Peter Hayashida, was he the VP there? At the yes. Time? Yeah, yeah. Yes, he yeah. was. He was. Um, who's a lovely human being. Yeah. Um, he's at Mark with Lundy now. I think he's since the guest. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. He is. People uh, would be lucky to, you know, he's, he's one of those like sage and thoughtful voices. I appreciate him very much. I'd known him from conferences a lot. He and I had chatted yeah. because he'd seen a couple of my presentations and introduced himself. And between you know the dean and the team and my respect for him and just the challenge, I really again the building. I love first campaigns. You know, it's so much work. It's so much work, but it's really rewarding. And so I got really really excited. And for me, I always trust my gut. I can look at on paper. Is this what I want? But it's if the opportunities, as they start talking about the challenges and where they want to go, and I, you know, if I get excited in my belly, if I'm suddenly hungry to take on, and I'm getting all creative about like we sh we should do this, and you should tackle this, and then I know it's the right thing for me because I like like to be excited and challenged, and I, I like really big creative strategic problems to solve. And uh, I didn't think I would end up going there, but that conversation with Catherine, and then later with the team just got me really, really excited. And she was a phenomenal partner. For personal reasons, I ended up, you know, because of a relationship that had started, I decided I didn't want to leave San Diego. And, you know, a year later, I was still doing a commute. We had a lot of donors in San Diego, so it was certainly possible. But that is a two-hour commute if you're going to do the drive. And it was a beat down, to be yeah. honest. So, -COVID, so there was no virtual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were super flexible with me. And again, you yeah. know, because I had donors in San Diego and, you know, all over I could, but I needed to be there a lot and a year of kind of doing the drive and feeling guilty, you know, that I probably wasn't in the office as much as like my team deserved me to be 
I started looking at, at something else. When I first interviewed uh, with UCR, I was also talking to Scripps Research. And at the time, I met the president. I loved him. We just like kind of clicked in terms of our thought process and how we think about different things. And I really liked our conversation, but I also felt like he was brand new in his role. And I felt like they didn't yet know what success looked like in the position. And um, they knew they needed people, but they weren't positive what the org chart would look like or who they needed or where to really start. Did they have a lot of fundraising? Like, how would you describe Scripps research to someone who does, who's not familiar with it? It's a brilliant basic science research institute that now has the added kind of distinction um, of doing drug discovery. So it's when people say bench to bedside, it's such a um, kind of overused phrase. We literally do basic science, bench science, and translate discoveries all the way. We have things in clinical trial. So we run the entire gamut. We have precision medicine and genetics. It is uh, a very exciting place to be. Um, But we also did not have a strong history of fundraising. They kind of raised a a steady rate of about $10 million despite themselves. There's in the past some brilliant people that worked there, but they were pre um, my current president and CEO. There wasn't really an emphasis, so I don't know that they got a ton of support. I know some of the people we still actually consult, you know, contract with one of them. There's some brilliant fundraisers that were there, and they did some incredible things with what they had. But there had never really been the institute supporting philanthropy as a whole, and the new president Pete Schultz was willing to do that and wanted to do that. So at the time, I thought UCR has a vision, and they know what they want, and, and they both excite me. But I'm a little nervous taking a big job where they don't yet know what success looks like. And then a year later, the woman that I had met asked me out for coffee and said, actually, I think it was cocktails at that point. And she said, because we kind of kept in touch and she really started outlining where they were going, what they wanted to do. And and it was really very exciting. And at that point, because of the drive and the relationship and really wanting to be more based in San Diego, I made the painful decision to leave UCR, which was hard because it was soon. But I'm so, so, so happy at Scripps Research. I've been here five years this month, actually. And there's just so much more to do. I I haven't even scratched the surface. As you look back at your career so far, and I know you're not done yet, not even close. No, God, no. (laughs) What are you most proud of? Oh, that's such a good question. If we're not talking job specific, if I can be a little, you know, more nebulous in my answer. No, you want. Yeah. I have built wonderful teams and I have coached and I think inspired into the field. I, I have lots of colleagues in the in the industry who were my phonathon callers. Yeah. And I'm really, really proud of the people I've gotten to work with and the people that I've seen just blossom and thrive, you know, when kind of given some vision and then given the tools to run themselves. uh, It's pretty incredible. I think I have an eye for talent and I've been able to really like resource some incredible people to grow. I think that must be why we love you so much here at AGN, because, you know, a a big part of what we do, you know, we're we are annual giving network and you know we are the world's leading resource for annual giving programs we're providing training programs like webinars and workshops you know specifically targeted at annual giving programs but when you think about educational institutions and you think about their advancement programs annual giving is not just a pipeline of donors it's not just right. that place where a donor makes their first gift and hopefully develops a habit of giving but from a staffing standpoint that's you know oftentimes where new younger people come in and that's very much, you know, 
part of our our mission at AGN is yeah. how do we bring new people into the industry? And Meredith, that's really what this podcast is, you know, hoping to get at is do let's talk to people who have had success and they've gone through their careers and they've had success as things they're proud of and they've made mistakes. And I want to ask you about mistakes in just a second. But this is an industry where the return on investment is so high. Yeah. When educational institutions make a decision and many of them understand this to invest in advancement and invest in philanthropy. That's why we have this issue right now. There are there's such a high ROI on advancement and investing in advancement. There's a greater need. There are more jobs than there are people with experience, which sort of is a problem in and of itself. People come sure. in, they spend six months on a job and then they move on to the next job. And we're you know, we've really seen it over right now. We're seeing it because institutions are really having trouble retaining people, you know, as we sort of yep. come out of COVID where there's a lot of industries out there that will offer huge flexibility and there's massive inflation. And we're about to come out with a salary survey report in just a couple of weeks that's going to show really some very surprising information about how salaries have basically not kept up over the last two years in advancement. I mean, the salary for an advancement professional has only increased 5% over the past two years. And institutions are a little reluctant to sort of let people just work completely remote. Some are different, some do. Plenty of startup companies and tech companies that are more than happy. So we're seeing this sort of mass exodus as if we didn't have trouble before. Yeah. I mean, good talent. So when I hear you talk about that being a point of pride, I think it really resonates. But let's go to the other side. Um, Have you made any mistakes? Anything that you... Oh, so many. (laughs) I'm glad you did almost. My CEO, he laughingly tells donors all the time that if he were doing any presentations on his mistakes in the lab, not his successes, that it would be like five times as long. Um, well, I'm repeating I, this too. I've said this at, at every episode we've had so far, but I had a boss who once said to me, you know, Dan, I'm not any smarter than you, but I am older than you, which just means I've been around longer and I've made more mistakes. And right. that's, that's why I make better decisions than you. And he's right. <laughs> uh, he was. So like I do, is there a particular mistake, you know, something that you learned a lesson from? It's, it's what I described at Oklahoma state. You know, I think it's driving change, but understanding. So I will back up and quote Bill Lively who ended his career at national geographic, but I was really blessed to work with him. They hired him as a consultant when I was at UNT and, you know, we were contemplating a campaign and, and he is just was bless his heart. Um, the most lovely, gracious, strategic fundraiser. Um, he had been at, at SMU for a long time, uh, led the fundraising to get the um, Super Bowl in Dallas. If you remember when it snowed horribly and it was a complete yeah. disaster. He he was incredible. And I just could have like sat and listened to him for years. He was so thoughtful. And he had really looked and picked a couple of people that he felt like understood him and he understood and mentored them really specifically. And I was lucky enough to be one of two um, that he spent his, you know, individual time on. And he always said, you know, education institutions are like the Queen Mary. And that is frustrating for us, the bureaucracy, you know, how long it takes sometimes to get things done. He said, but we are charged with the most sacred thing of educating future generations. We need to be impervious to whims and trends. Uh, Education should hold itself to a higher in a noble purpose than that. And I should have heeded that in understanding 
that what I was trying to do, they weren't going to move as quickly as they weren't going to turn as quickly as I wanted them to turn. And I should have done a little bit more patient educating on my vision among my peers. I think it would have been smoother. I think the change needed to happen, but I could have been more patient and more understanding with an institution that didn't quite understand annual giving and wasn't just willing to trust this young, brash person uh, that they needed a little bit more wooing and convincing. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. I made it, I think, harder on myself and on them than it needed. Uh, I relate to that. Well, you get excited, especially if you're a builder, you get, you get, you get excited. Actually, sometimes you can be patient. Sometimes if you have lots of ideas and you do get excited and energized and you have vision, even if you understand that sometimes it does take a while for the, you know, people to process that and for it to sink in or even to implement it. Sometimes people just assume because you have these ideas that you want it done right away. Um, Right. I get that. So let me ask you just to kind of to, to wrap up this great conversation and I could go on on and on and on talking to you, but if you had advice for a newcomer out there, you know, somebody who's just getting started, whether it's in annual giving or some other aspect, what would you tell them? What would be your advice to put them on the road for success? And then I want to ask you as either part of that or separate, what is success to you? Is it being the VP? You know, is it being a chief advancement officer? We're now even see many chief advancement officers aspiring to be presidents or heads of school. Maybe, or maybe it's the other way. What is success and what is your advice to someone coming into advancement to help them be successful? Yeah. So success for me, I think really is about, I mean, there's probably a component of it that is my um, record, you know, is strong. My reputation is strong and I can collaborate or work with others or, or go somewhere else, you know, that I have built that kind of network and relationships that ensure a steady career, a stable career. But success is more specifically to me about strategic freedom you know, being able to really operate at a level where I get to be involved in big, creative, strategic discussions that excite and scare me. You know, wherever that is, I, I want to sit at that table and I, I want to be challenged and I want to feel out of my element. I want to be pushed. That's what success is. And if I was going to give advice to people, my advice would be bet on yourself. You know, no matter what scares you, no matter, you know, whether it's something that you're familiar with, something you've done before, something you haven't, like, don't be, don't be scared to take risks. You know, I always say, if I've got the tools and I'm supported, I know that I'm competitive. I know that I'm going to really throw myself into the challenge. So I'm not scared to bet on myself. You know, if that's the, I know I can do it. I know I'll rise to the challenge, even if, even if I don't think I can do it. (laughs) Well, Meredith, thank you. you. You've done so much for AGN and all the teaching that you've done. And, and we look forward to you doing much more. And thanks for sharing your story. There's a, lo- a lot here and uh, we're grateful for you. Well, I really thank appreciate you. it, Dan. Like, I love coaching. I love bringing people along. And I had so many great webinars that just kind of blew my mind early in my career. Um, and still that I love to be a part of that for the next generation of, of leaders that we have coming up. Well, Thanks for this conversation, and we'll look forward to keeping you involved with AGN as much as you'll uh, allow us to. I love AGN. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) All right, Meredith. Thank you so much. To learn more about our membership program and everything AGN has to offer, visit our website at annualgivingnetwork.com. 